0: Johnny Tremain, Chapter 2, Section 2, starting on page 34. By Saturday noon, Johnny, following Mr. Revere's advice and his curve, had got the model of the handle exactly right. He could tell with his eyes closed. It felt perfect. He rapidly made a duplicate, for when the molten silver was poured in on the wax, it would melt and float away. So he made a model for each handle. Now, no matter how long it took him, and if all went well, it should not be too long, he must get his handles cast, cleaned, and soldered to the basin itself, which Mr. Lapham had made. Of course, on Sunday, the shop would be locked up all day, the furnace cold. Mr. Lapham would, as always, escort his household, dressed in Sunday best, to the Cockerel Church, and after that, back for a cold dinner. Whether they went again or not to afternoon meeting, the master left for each to decide. He himself always went. Madge and Dorcas usually entertained their beau. Mrs. Lapham slept. Scylla would take Azana out along the little beach. Johnny Dove and Dusty were apt to steal off for a swim, although Mr. Lapham had no idea of it. He thought they sat quietly at home and that Johnny read the Bible out loud to them. So Sunday was out but if he got up at three or four Monday morning, he would have time to clean his work before he took it over to Mr. Hancock at seven. After Saturday dinner, Mr. Lapham, as usual, prepared for a snooze, stretched out in the one armchair in the shop with his basket over his head to keep off the flies. Perhaps Johnny's tyranny during the week had irritated the old gentleman, who never believed it made the least difference to anyone when anything was finished. Dove, Dusty, Johnny was yelling. Build up the furnace. Fetch in charcoal. Hi, you lazy, good-for-nothing dish mops. Dove ran out to the coal house. There was a queer, pleased look on his face when he returned. Charcoal, charcoal, all gone, Master Johnny. Gone. Yep. I haven't said anything because you always like to take charge of things like that round here. Get a basket, quick. Run to Mr. Hamblin over on Long Wharf. Try Mrs. Hitchborn down on Hitchborn's Wharf. You've got to get charcoal. Hurry. Dove did not hurry. It was getting on toward sunset when at last he came back, pushing his big basket on a wheelbarrow. It was the worst-looking charcoal Johnny had ever seen. This isn't what we silversmiths use. This is fourth-rate stuff. Fit for iron, maybe. You know that, Dove. No, not me. I don't know anything. See, you're always telling me. I want willow charcoal. You never said so. I'll go myself. But this delay means we'll be working in lamplight and up to midnight. You are the stupidest animal God ever made. If He made you, which I doubt, why your mother didn't drown you when you were a pup? I can't imagine. Come, Lord Day, and I have a spare moment. I'm going to give you such a hiding for your infernal lowdown skulking tricks. You'll be. The basket over Mister Lapham's head moved he laid it down. Boys, he said mildly, you quarrel all the time. Johnny, in angry mouthfuls, told him what he thought about Dove and the charcoal and threw in a cutting remark about Dusty. The old master said, Dove, I want to speak to Johnny alone. And then, Johnny, I don't want you to be always riding them boys so hard. Dove tries, but he's stupid. Ain't his fault, is it? If God had wanted him bright, he would have made him that way. We're all poor worms. You're getting above yourself like I tried to point out to you. God is going to send you a dire punishment for your pride. Yes, sir. One trouble with you is you haven't been up against any boys as good as yourself, or better maybe. Because you're the best young one in this shop or or on Hancock's Wharf, you think you're the best one in the world. Johnny was so anxious to be on with the work, tediously delayed by Dove's tricks, he hardly listened. And boy, don't you go get all fretted up over what's after all nothing but an order for silver. It's sinful to let yourself go so over mundane things. Now I want you to sit quietly and memorize them verses I had read you about pride. Work's over for the day. What? Yep. Yep. It always was the old-fashioned way to start Lord's Day at sunset on Saturday, and I've decided to re-establish the habit in my house. Mr. Lapham, we've got to work this evening. We've promised Mr. Hancock. I doubt God cares even a little bit whether Mr. Hancock has any silver. It's better to break faith with him, isn't it, than with the Lord? Johnny was tired. His head was ringing. His hand shook a little. He walked out of the shop, slamming the door after him, and stormed into the kitchen. He knew Mrs. Lapham did not take much stock in her father-in-law's pious ways. She and all four girls were in the kitchen. Madge was frying cornmeal, Dorcas wringing out a cheesecloth, Scylla was setting the table, and Azana playing with the cat. Mrs. Lapham looked at him. Boy, have you seen a ghost? Johnny sat and told his story. He was beyond his customary abusive eloquence. The girl stared at him with piteous open mouths. Mrs. Lapham's jaw set grimly. Dorcas, shut that door. Don't let your grandpa hear, Johnny. How many more work hours will you need? Seven maybe I can get two Monday morning. You shall have them. Sabbath or no Sabbath, that sugar basin is going to be done on time. I'm not letting any old-fashioned fussy notions upset the best order we've had for 10 years. And if Mr. Hancock is pleased, he may come again and again. I can't have my poor fatherless girls starve just to please grandpa. Listen now to me. Sunday afternoon, Mr. Lapham was not only going to the second service as usual, but there was to be a meeting of the deacons at a cold supper afterward and a prayer service at the pastor's. That's where you get them five hours, Johnny, tomorrow afternoon. Johnny knew that working on the Sabbath was against the law, as well as against all his religious training. He might very well go to the stocks or to hell for it, but when Mrs. Lapham said, darest to Johnny, he said, I darest. Not a word to the old gentleman, mind. Not a word. Girls, if you so much as peep, oh no, ma. Dove and Dusty were to be bribed into service by the promise of of delivering the basin to Mr. Hancock when done. He always gave money to boys who brought things to the house. Mrs. Lapham was breathing hard, but she had the matter well in hand. It was settled. Isana, she said quietly you call Grandpa and the boys. In for supper. Scylla, run down cellar and fetch cold owl. Her mouth and the folds about it, even her nose and eyes, were like iron. Chapter 2, Section 3, Page 40. Sunday afternoon, and the work went forward with never a hitch. Even Dub and Dusty were good and obedient, although Dove was half-threatening to tell old Grandpa when he got home. Johnny did not care what his master might say. Only, please God, the basin were done and Mr. Hancock come again and again with his rich orders. If Mr. Lapham was angry, he could sell Johnny's time to Paul Revere. The four girls, still dressed in their pretty go to meeting frocks, watched him with fascinated, admiring eyes. Their mother sent them out of doors. Did the smoke from the furnace show from the wharf, from Fish Street? Did they hear any comments? Having found for himself the proper willow charcoal, Johnny went quickly ahead with his casting. He set his two wax models in wet sand. The furnace was piping hot. His hands were very sure. He was confident he could do the work, yet inside he was keyed up and jumpy. Mrs. Lapham fussed about him, and he ordered her to do simple things. Not the draft yet, Mrs. Lapham. Now get to work with the bellows. Once he even told her to look sharp, and she took it with a humble, Yes, Johnny. Now, Fetch me the crucible. She turned to Dove. Which one does he want, boy? I'll get her down. Dove went to the shelves where the crucibles for melting silver were kept. Johnny did not see Dove standing on a stool, reaching far back and carefully taking out a cracked crucible. Dusty saw him and giggled. He knew the crack in it was so small it was hard even to see. It might stand the heat of the furnace, but the chances were that it would not. That was why Mr. Lapham had put it so far back. Both he and Dove thought it would just about serve Johnny Tremaine right, after the insufferable way he had been bossing everybody, if the crucible crucible gave way and the hot silver did spill all over the top of the furnace. It would certainly make Johnny look like a fool— after all his fussing. Johnny took the cracked crucible in his trusting hands, put in it silver ingots, set it on top of the furnace. Scylla flew in. Ma, there's a man looking at our chimney. How's he dressed? Seafaring man. No seafaring man ever objected to a little Sabbath breaking, but mind if you see any deacons or constables. The work went on. Izana sat with a cat in her lap. Johnny's going to hell, she said firmly. Johnny himself thought this was possible. He called to Mrs. Lapham to look sharp and put the old silver turnip watch where he could see it. The silver must be run at a certain speed and be allowed to cool for just so long. Mrs. Lapham was so slavishly eager to help him, he almost felt fond of her. He did not notice Dusty and Dub snickering in a corner. Some of the beeswax he had used for his models had been left too near the furnace. It had melted and run over the floor. Johnny had been taught to clean up as he went along, but today he was in too much of a hurry to bother. Johnny, cried Mrs. Lapham, isn't it time to pour? Look, the silver has melted and begun to wink. It was true. He moved forward delicately, his right hand outstretched. The crucible began to settle collapse. The silver was running over the top of the furnace like spilled milk. Johnny jumped toward it, his right hand still outstretched. Something happened. He never knew exactly what. His feet went out from under him. His hand came down on the top of the furnace. The burn was so terrible, he at first felt no pain, but stood stupidly looking at his hand. For one second before the metal cooled, The inside of his right hand, from wrist to fingertips, was coated with solid silver. He looked at the back of his hand. It was as always. Then he smelled burned flesh. The room blackened and tipped around him. He heard a roaring in his ears. When he came to, he was stretched out upon the floor. Dorcas was trying to pour brandy down his throat. Mrs. Lapham had plunged the burn hand into a panful of flour and was yelling at Madge to hurry with her bread poultice. He saw Scylla's face. It was literally green. Ma, she said, licking her white lips, shall I run for doctor Warren? No, no, oh wait, I've got to think. I don't want any of them doctors to know we was breaking Sabbath day, and we don't need no doctor for just a burn. Scylla, you run down the wharf and you fetch that old midwife, Grand Hopper. These old women know better than any doctor how to cure things like this. Johnny, how you feel? All right. Hurt yet? Not yet. He knew it would later. Chapter 2, Section 4 Johnny lay in the birth and death room. This was hardly more than a closet with a tiny window off the kitchen used for storage except in times of sickness. His hand had been done up in a linseed poultice. The smell of the linseed was stifling, and now on the second day the pain had really begun. His arm throbbed to the shoulder. Grand Hopper was in the kitchen, talking to Mrs. Lapham. Mind you keep that poultice wet. Just leave it wrapped up and wet it now and then with lime water. There's more luck than anything else in things like this is. If it don't come along good, I'll make a charm. Not many years before, Grand Hopper would have been hanged for a witch. She had the traditional venerable years, the toothless, cackle, the mustache. Nor was she above resorting to charms. But she had had vast experience. No doctor in Boston knew more than she about midwifery and children's diseases. So far, she had done as well as any of them, except for one thing. The hand had been allowed to draw together, turn in on itself. It was less painful than if it had been held out flat. By the fourth day, ulceration had set in. This was considered nature's way of healing an injury. Hopper gave him laudanum and more laudanum. There followed drowsy days and nights that ran together, a ceaseless roaring in the ears. There was nothing left of him but the pain and the drug. The fever abated, and with it the doses of the drug. Jotty had not once looked at his hand since he had stood before the furnace and seen it lined with silver. Gran Hopper said on the next day she would unwrap it and see, as she cheerfully put it, quote, what was left. Thus far, the pain and the drug and the fever had dulled his mind. He had not thought about the future, for of what use to anyone was a cripple-handed silversmith. But that night, Grandhopper's words haunted him. Next day, she would see, quote, what was left. He was utterly unprepared for the sight of his hand when finally it was unwrapped and lay in the midwife's aproned lap. Mrs. Lapham, Madge, Dorcas, all had crowded into the little birth and death room. Silla and Nazana were in the kitchen, too frightened to go near him. My, said Madge, isn't that funny looking? The top part, Johnny, looks all right, although a little narrow, but Johnny, your thumb and palm have grown together. This was true. He bent and twisted his fingers. He could not get the thumb to meet the forefinger. Such a hand was completely useless. For the first time, he faced the fact that his hand was crippled. Oh, let me see! Dorcas was leaning over him. She gave her most elegant little screech of horror, just like a great lady who has seen a mouse. My! said mrs Lapham, that's worse than anything I had imagined. Now, isn't that a shame? Bright boy like Johnny just ruined. No more good than a horse with sprung knees. Johnny did not stay to hear more. That morning, he had dressed with mrs Lapham's competent help for the first time. He got up, stood facing them stiffly. His bad hand jammed into his breeches pocket. I'm going out, he said thickly. Scylla and Azana sat close together in a frightened huddle, staring at him, not daring to speak. He said rudely, You should have come in too, and seen the fun. Scylla gaped at him, tried to say something, but only swallowed, You two sitting there looking like a couple of fishes. He slammed the door after him. He had always been bad about slamming doors. In the fresh air, he felt better. He pretended not to hear Mrs. Lapham calling him from a window to come right back. All Fish Street could hear when Mrs. Lapham called. He paid no heed. He walked all over Boston, his hand thrust deep in his breeches pocket. Instinctively, he wanted to tire himself out, which was easy in his weakened condition, so he could not think. When he came back, there was something queer about the silence of the kitchen. No one reproved him because he had disobeyed Mrs. Lapham. He knew they had been talking about him. Scylla, for one of the first times in her life, tried to be polite to him. "'Oh, Johnny,' she whispered. "'I'm sorrier than I was ever sorry before,' Izana said. "'Is it true, like Ma says, you'll be only good for picking rags?' Scylla turned on Izana. "'You're crazy. Johnny isn't going to pick rags.' But oh, Johnny, it's so awful and I'm so sorry. And Johnny's face went crimson, was crimson. Will you stop talking about it? Izana went on. Madge says it looks awful. If either of you girls he stormed ever mentioned that I've even got a hand, I'll, I'll just get on a ship and never come back. I'm not going to have you mucking about with your infernal crybaby. Oh, how dreadfuls. So he went to the shop he saw with anger that Dove was sitting at his bench, daring to use his tools. He had not been in the shop for a month. Of course, it should be expected that Dove would use his bench for a little while, just until he was back at it himself. Mr. Lapham had looked up from his work, blinked gently, shook his head, and sighed. Dusty was making a terrific din in one corner. Johnny stood and watched Dove's clumsy work as long as he could in silence. At last, he burst out. Dove, don't hold your crimping iron like that. Dove leaned back. His fat, white face grinned up at him with exaggerated innocence. Thank you, Master Johnny. I know I'm not as good as you are. Won't you please to show me just how I should hold my crimping iron? Johnny walked out of the shop by the door leading to the wharf. He'd never show anybody again how to hold a crimping iron. If you can't do, you'd best shut up. He started to slam the door, thought better of it. If you can't do, you better best not slam doors. So he strolled the length of the wharf. There was a big ship in from Jamaica. He idly watched porters rolling barrels of molasses out of its hold. A sailor was trying to sell an old lady a parrot. He saw John Hancock standing in a group of men. The sugar basin had never been delivered. When Mr. Lapham had discovered the evil that had gone on in his absence and the terrible punishment God had meted out to Johnny Tremaine, he had ordered the whole thing melted down and he himself had gone over to Mr. Hancock, returned the cream pitcher, and merely said he had found it impossible to make a sugar basin. No explanation. The boy was accustomed to working from 8 to 12, sometimes 14 hours in a day. He had no holidays, no Saturday afternoons, He had often imagined to himself the pleasure it would be just to stroll once down Hancock's Wharf as he was strolling now. Nothing to do. His hands in his pockets. Other boys, friends of his, would look up from their work, envy his idleness. Here and there, he did see a familiar face. He believed every one of them was talking about his burn, pitying him. There was not a boy on the wharf Johnny did not know. He had made friends with some and enemies of others and had played or fought with all of them. He saw Saw and Dicer packing salt herrings in a tub. Andy, his leather thimble strapped to his palm, sewing a sail. Tom Drinker, the local bully, coopering a barrel. This was Johnny's world, but now he walked through it an alien. They knew what had happened. They did not envy Johnny's idleness. He saw one nudge another. They were whispering about him daring to pity him. Dicer's master, the herring pickler, yelled some kind remark to him, but Johnny did not answer. Seemingly in one month he had become a stranger, an outcast, on Hancock's wharf. He was maimed and they were whole. At the end of the wharf, under the derrick used for unloading the largest ships, he stripped off his clothes and dove into the water. There was not another working boy in Boston who was out swimming in the middle of the afternoon, Only once or twice in a summer, on days of unendurable heat, teachers dismissed schools, masters closed shops, and their boys ran down to the wharves to swim. Sometimes, like Mr. Lapham's boys, they swam secretly, silently, on Sunday afternoon. But usually only after dusk had fallen and the day's work was over. Johnny dove and swam, but it was curious to be alone. He did not like the feeling of being thus cut off from his normal life. Yet one thing gave him great pleasure. Once in the water, his bad hand was as good as the other. Swimming, he could forget it.